Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Jess, Kate, hi, it's Jeff from Austin, G-E-O-F-F, remember? I called into the show last week, and look, I just wanted to apologize. I might have come off a little foolish. I'm sorry. I really am an ally. I mean, I am 100% a feminist. I wear my pink pussy hat all the time. <laughs> Solidarity, you know? Um, look, I really don't want to come off as dickish, especially on a public platform, because I'm a PhD, for Christ's sake, people might look me up or something. Anyway, all I was trying to say was that I am on your side. It's tough to get women's sports in the national conversation, and believe you me, I wish I was seeing more San Antonio Stars jerseys than Spurs jerseys, but that's a $2 billion team that does $150 million in merchandise alone. It's just a big, powerful legacy right there. It's tough for women to fight that monster. I mean, I... I guess people like me could start buying Stars merch or something. Which I might, you know, I, I've never been to a game or anything, but we just gotta get loud about this stuff. Get loud, make some noise, disrupt the space. Which reminds me, I'm, I'm actually reading this wonderful book right now called Disrupt the Space, and it's all about making seismic changes in your life or career by changing your thinking. Um, really inspiring stuff. Maybe I'll send over a copy to the show. Anyway, good stuff. We're gonna get there, all of us. Together. <laughs> Woo! Go Spurs. I, I mean stars. Go stars. Go women. <laughs> okay. Bye. Welcome to Off the Looking Glass. I'm Kate Fagan. I'm Jessica Smetana. And that was Jeff from Austin. G-E-O-F-F. Who, look, his heart is in the right place, Jess. Mm. It's pretty clear to me, though, that Jeff from Austin just simply Googled closest team to Austin, Texas, and hasn't realized that the San Antonio Stars have been in Vegas for a number of years. Jeff. Yeah. So we really appreciate all of the feedback. And, you know, this it's fascinating to me because I, I think this is a common it's a common phenomenon of Googling. Googling what an NBA team makes and what a WNBA team makes and then coming to a very rapid conclusion. But thank you, Jeff. We love you. Solidarity. Jeff, uh, if you're listening to this, we have a great episode for you. And for all of our listeners today, we have Nancy Lieberman, who will be our guest. And she's going to talk to us about some of the old school days of playing professional basketball and what she has seen change over her years being part of that sport. Yeah, she jumps right in. We dive right in. We dove in head first. We also have on the show today a Does It Hold Up? An appropriate Does It Hold Up? Where Jess and I rewatch, wait for it, Love and Basketball. It was my first time watching Love and Basketball. And I don't want to spoil anything, but this movie might hold up more than any other movie has ever held up. Yeah, I mean... We'll see if we can find any flaw with Love and Basketball because this is a pillar. It's a good movie. In the women's sports canon. Yes. So, but we're going to 
We're going to go there, and there's a lot of parts of Love and Basketball that I was reminded of that actually really accurately reflect the experience of women's sports and female athletes. So we're going to go there with Love and Basketball. Plus, we have a returning sponsor with a new product for us. I can't wait to hear it. Me too. Don't skip the ads. Hey, this is Gabrielle Union, and the first time I realized there was a difference between how men get treated and how women get treated in sports and in Hollywood was when I realized that in every interview, uh, no matter what I'm pitching, I, I'm always asked how I balance it all. How am I a mother, a wife, a business person, a friend, a, a fitness person, all, all of these things, they, they can't they, they have no idea of how I manage it all. And there's an expectation that I manage it all and balance it all perfectly. And then I realized my husband, who spent 16 years in the NBA, who did, you know, press junkets every day, was never asked. And a good chunk of his NBA career, he was a single dad with full custody of his kids, who also had a big life and a bunch of things going on. But I realized the expectation wasn't there for him to have to be all things to everybody all the only expectation that they had of him was that he was great on the court and brought home a check that's what i found to be wildly unfair and that was when i had the epiphany oh i'm not answering these questions anymore they're stupid and it's a trap our guest today is proudly from queens far rockaway she was a silver medalist at the 1976 Montreal Olympics, which was the first to have women's basketball. She was the first two-time winner of the Wade Trophy at Old Dominion. She's a member of the Basketball Hall of Fame and the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame. All right, let's do it. Let's bring her on. Nancy Lieberman. My context for Olympic women's basketball begins in 1996 with the SI cover and the Atlanta Olympics. And I think since then, there's been those moments for women's sports, both the Olympics and World Cup, where there's a ton of attention, which leads me to wonder when you're playing in 1976 in Montreal, what's the experience like? Do you feel like you're, you know, like an echo, a drop of water in the ocean? Like, what was that like then? I don't think we ever felt like that. Uh, I could be wrong because I was only in high school and I, I was just enjoying like the whole experience of being Pat Summit or Pat Head's teammate or Ann Meyer's teammate or Lucy Harris's uh, teammate. But I will say this, they did not budget USA basketball. It was called ABA USA. They did not have a budget to send the women's basketball team to Montreal. Are you aware of this? Mm -mm. And we had to go, we had to qualify in Hamilton, Ontario. So we go there and we end up being the gold medal team at this pre-Olympic tournament. So us in Bulgaria get to go to Montreal. Billy Moore, uh, the Hall of Famer, the head coach of UCLA and of the Olympic team, her and Bill Wall, who was the director of USA or basketball or ABA USA, and Bill's no longer with us. They put our travel on their credit cards to send us from Hamilton, Ontario to Montreal. 
and we bust up there and nobody expected us to qualify. But I felt like we were treated like equals because it was historic, you know, being the first women's Olympics that had a women's basketball in it. Uh, the Soviet Union had Yuliana Semenova, 7'2", 280 pound, you know, the Hall of Famer. They had not lost uh, since 1958. They were the dominating force. Matter of fact, another little trivia, Alex Ovechkin's mother, I played against her in the Olympics. <laughs> How about that, right? No way. That's, it's amazing stuff. I know. They were massive. And we ended up playing Japan at nine o'clock in the morning in the first Olympic basketball game for women ever. And Billy Moore was having us get up at like 4.35 in the morning. And I was like, yo, I don't get up this early. And Pat said, you will now. <laughs> she was practicing coaching on me back then. <laughs> so we knew the historical significance of what we were doing. And this was in the locker room right before we went out to play for the silver medal against Czechoslovakia. And Billy said, ladies, what you do today will change the course of women's basketball history for the next 25 years. It will affect every little girl out there who is going to represent the United States or to play in college. You know, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm 17 years old. I don't even know what I'm going to be doing in 20 minutes, much less 25 years. And she gave this powerful locker room speech and everybody was riveted. And son of a gun, she was right. We went out there, we won the silver medal, we beat Czechoslovakia. And that 96 team really was a function of what happened in 76. And you know what was really cool? We got this beautiful plaque, a picture from the 96 team. They gave the 76 team, 20 years later, a thank you on a beautiful plaque that I still have in my trophy room saying thank you. Thank you for, for setting it up you know, for us. The 1976 team, since you, you mentioned Pat, and we, we have a little Pat Summit thread on this podcast, it's easy for me to know the raise the roof Pat and, you know, the Pat that's accepting in induction into the Hall of Fame in 2008. What is Pat Summit like in 1976? Well, well, she was my teammate in 75 when we won the gold medal at the Pan Am Games, and I was uh, 16 years old. And then she was my teammate again in 76 when we won the silver. It was interesting because she was so good to me personally, but you know, I was like, yo, Pat, how you doing? Cause like I was from New York and this is like how I talk and you want some water, you know, like the end of the quarter, we'll see. And she was like, Nancy, I can't understand a thing you're saying. So we're riding on the bus one day in Warrensburg, Missouri, and we're going to practice. And she looks out there and in the window and she's in the back of the bus. She goes, look how beautiful that grass is. And she's talking about the grass. And I turned around, I went, it's grass. And she goes, Nancy, it's beautiful. I said, no, like a brick building in New York is beautiful. That's grass. And like animals eat it. And I know people in New York who smoke it. Don't tell anybody I'm telling you this. <laughs> they started laughing at me. So, I mean, <laughs> they were so much older than me. I'm surprised they didn't kill me. But they made me better. And I think by default, I had to guard her every day in practice. So, you know, I was about 5'8", five, 5'. Five. At that point, I was still growing. She was 5'10". She was country strong. And I was New York slick. The battles in practice. Because I, I was 5'8 and can dunk a tennis ball. 
And she was just smarter, you know, than a professor. And I was dumber than a box of rocks, but I was athletic. <laughs> I was athletic. It's crazy to think I had to guard her every day in practice. And she was so good. Let me tell you what Pat was. Pat was one of the greatest passers I had ever been on the court with. Nobody would ever know that because she was a great defender. She was physical. She'd knock you down. She was, she'd box you out two, three, four times. Her effort was endless. And she was a winner. She was not a good shooter. And she was a great passer. That feels like an accurate, like that maps so well onto her coaching, <laughs> that like description of her. So is it a leap to suggest that like the 1976 Olympics and women's basketball being in the Olympics, is that a direct result of why like the Women's Basketball Professional League launches in 1978? Do you think like that that is a launch point for women's basketball in the same way that we see it be in 1996 into the WNBA? The next rung was going to have a professional league. And I didn't know if we would ever have one. And then in about 1985, I received a phone call from David Stern, who was recently, you know, the commissioner of the NBA. So I fly to New York and we go in his office in Manhattan and he closes the door. And, you know, me being me, I go, why are you closing the door? <laughs> he just looks at me like, I don't want anybody to hear this. And I said, hear what? He goes, Nancy, before I'm done as commissioner of the NBA, there's going to be a women's National Basketball Association. I about dropped it right there in his office. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He said, there will be a W and I have one hope. I said, what's that? He goes, I hope you'll still be around to play in it. When you're 24, 25 years old, you think you're going to play forever. And I went, of course I'm going to play. I mean, I'm not even in my prime yet. And he goes, okay, I hope you're still there to play. And so fast forward to 97, that to me was the catalyst. He had been planning this for years. He had been getting on the phone for years with all the owners. Obviously, the W having the backing of, of David Stern and the NBA and the ownership group is like this huge, both financial and then security that existed in 97 when it launched. Can you take us back to playing for the Dallas Diamonds and like, you know, the Women's Basketball Professional League and like, take us on a road trip, like before things got, I guess, more corporate and in all the best ways. But like, what was that like? Well, when I was at Old Dominion, you know, and, and we were women's basketball, as I'm sure you will know, before Tennessee, before Connecticut, before Stanford. I mean, we were the, the gold standard. I mean, we had, we'd walk off the court. And coaches would whisper in my ear, what is it like to play every night in front of sellout crowds? What is it like to win championships? I mean, this is Gino. This is Pat. This is people that I really admired. So we were playing in Madison Square Garden. We all have, I don't have a filter, by the way, I lost it. So, <laughs> uh, and I'm still looking for my filter. I'm sure it's out there somewhere on eBay. <laughs> So we're playing in Madison Square Garden. We're playing Louisiana Tech. And I do the morning show. And as I'm doing uh, the morning show with Jane Pauley, she goes, well, Nancy, you're going to play in the WBL next year. And I said, yeah, of course I'm going to play. And she said, so, you know, your, your friend Ann Myers is the highest paid player in the league. She'd make $50,000. She goes, well, where do you want to play? I said, I don't really care where I play. And she says, well, what will you ask for? 
I said, like, I don't know what I'm going to ask for, but I'm twice as good and twice as young. So I guess I should get a hundred thousand. That didn't really go well then <laughs> and didn't bother me for a while. Uh, it was, I don't know what it was, but it came out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But that's what happened. Dallas paid me $100,000 to play basketball. And I played with Deborah Rodman was my teammate. You know, we played against each other. Dennis's sister. The league was so stinking competitive with Machine Gun Molly Bowl, uh, with Ann, with Blaze, um, you know, uh, Kay and Faye Young. Young. They see identical twins do identical things. But Kay and I are different. Sure, we both play pro basketball. And since we can't always eat right, we both look for the same kind of nutrition, Dan and yogurt. Dan is all natural and not many foods give you more nutrition with fewer calories. But that's it. That's where we part company. Yeah, because when it comes to Dan and I like blueberry, our Faye here goes for blueberry. Dan and low-fat yogurt. A good thing going for you every day. Wait a second. Those are two women's basketball players in that ad that we just listened to, but it sounds like the '80s. Was I? But the WNBA is only 25 years old. What are, What are we listening to right now? I was wondering if you'd think we were in the multiverse, Jess, but we are not. That was a Dannon yogurt commercial from 1980, starring Kay and Faye Young, North Carolina State stars, and then who went on to play for the New York stars in the WBL. So they were college stars and New York stars and twins. So they're like they're, quadruple stars. Yeah, it's like to right? the nth degree. Basically yes. a constellation. And they, and they were <laughs> five foot 11, white blonde Southern women who, if you actually see this commercial, you actually, people should look it up. It's a Dan and Yoga commercial from 1980 starring Kay and Faye Young. And it's pretty mesmerizing. I've watched it about 15 times in the last two hours. So, but the reason that we are down this rabbit hole is because up above us, Nancy referenced the WBL, the Women's Basketball Pro League that ran for three seasons, 1978 to 1981. It folded in November of 1981. I don't think a lot of people even know that this basketball league existed. One. Two, I did a little research on it, and I think a lot of the themes that we've talked about on Off the Looking Glass get represented in the story of this basketball league. So, do you want me to tell you a little story here, Jess? I do. This kind of reminds me of our WUSA rabbit hole, but now we're talking about basketball, so please inform me. Talking about the WBL reminded me that a lot of the casual fan seems to think that, oh, there's been a lot of women's professional leagues across sports and they always fail because no one likes women's sports, right? That seems to kind of be the theory. Then you peel back the layers and you're like, wow, there seems to be, and here I'm going to pick out three, three common themes for women's professional leagues and the ingredients that go into baking them. So the first one, the first one is that no matter what time, in history it is the number one thing that women's sports seems to constantly fall back on is that it matters less how they play and more what they look like Mm. so here I'm going to pull a quote from actually Donna Orender who went on to be a commissioner of the WNBA and she played in this very first 
professional league. And she had this article in the New York Times at the same time that the league folded in November of 1981. And one of her quotes is, the press was more interested in pinups than layups. And, and in this, she's like 25 years old. So there's not perspective. She's just realizing this along the way. And then another quote within it was, quote, Talent was still an important consideration, but marketability was a big issue. And as women athletes, how we looked on the court played a big role. So this is all throughout history. How they look seems to be the preeminent factor. I mean, it's like the scene in A League of Their Own where they're doing the splits yep. on the diamond, right? For yep. the Time Mag or Life magazine cover. I mean, yeah, if it's full circle to the movies Hollywood is making about it. And then also the certainly... Also casting Gina Davis. <laughs> Casting scene. A beautiful young woman. <laughs> That's right. Okay. Point number two in talking about the WBL, this league that ran for three seasons in the late 70s. Man, these dudes who started these leagues were flying by the seat of their pants. And that seems to be like a common theme. Whereas like you look at the history of men's leagues and there's like famous robber barons who have funded so much of like, say the NFL, right? You've got like people who had like billions of dollars in steel and they're willing to just like lose money year over year until they find the winning solution. Dudes that are jumping into women's sports, maybe they've taken out a loan for like 30 grand and they're just diving in. So, okay, so this is from the, the day that the WBL launches. They have a draft at, in New York City and it's, it's really kind of hodgepodge. And the New York Times writes an article, and, and I want to read to you <laughs> two graphs from it. So at this draft, the launch point of this professional league, here's the quote. Among the participants was 27-year-old Larry Konitsky, president, general manager, scout, public relations man, and secretary for the yet-to-be-named New York franchise. He had answered Burns, and, and Burns was the actual overall founder of the league, Burns' newspaper advertisement gathered some backers and purchased a franchise for $50,000. And now here's the quote. Quote, I played ball at Pace College and coached at boys' club levels, said the eager Kanitsky. I always wanted to get into sports. He works now for a sales company. Quote, it's ladies sewing, so I'm involved with women already. Okay. Okay. So, 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 okay. so his qualifications are a love for sports, and already working with women. So imagine imagine launching a men's professional I league. know some ladies. <laughs> My mom's a lady. <laughs> also, like, okay, and they ended up naming the team the Stars. Like, they couldn't, they, they took their time naming this team. It wasn't ready yet for the draft, and then they just went with Stars. Yep. I just, the lack of creativity here is, is also sticking out to me, Kate. Yep. All right, and the third thing I want to point out, and it does tie into number one, in that, the the marketing and here when we let in with Kay and Faye Young and they're in this Danning commercial that is tangentially good for the WBL but it's really more about those twins and they're very striking blonde twins they were also in a double mint gum but the lack of infrastructure and marketing that has always existed around women's sports that are launching so there's this graph from 1979 in the New York Times talking about the New York Stars again so presumably one of the premier franchises because it's in New York for this WBL. And here's a line. Tickets for New York's games are $5 for adults and $3.50 for children. And season tickets, none of which have been sold, 
are $50 for 12 games. So you're looking at like, you know, four fifty a game. So in the preeminent franchise, one of the preeminent franchises, the marketing team has managed to sell zero season tickets. You're telling me there was not a lesbian to be found who wanted to buy season tickets to the New York Stars. This is also in New York where, as you told us in our last episode, there were like tens of thousands of people lining up to watch a woman walk less than a dec or less than a century earlier. So in eighteen seventy nine, people were paying two dollars to watch Ada Anderson walk in circles on sawdust. But they would not <laughs> fork over the same amount of money in nineteen seventy nine, three fifty for children, five dollars for adults in the same vicinity to watch the New York stars. Now, on one hand, you could say that's because no one wants to watch women, but who was their marketing person? I mean, there's a couple right. lesbian it, bars you could have walked into. This is also New York City where, like, you can find anyone doing anything at any time on any street corner in the city. There are women sports fans here. It doesn't matter what decade. People will go to women's basketball games. I, I think you're right. It is, it's also, like, the center of media and press for the entire country, especially at this point where there was still, like, Publishers Row in New York City. So, yeah, I, I think there you you really do bring up a good point, which is that, like, who are you even trying to sell this to? How much effort and money are you putting behind it? If you're not able to even sell one ticket, it clearly is not very much. Yes. <laughs> okay, before we bounce back up to Nancy, who was the star of the Dallas Diamonds in this WBL, I wanted to leave you with this last little bit from the New York Times. And it's, again, it's our friend Kanitsky. And it says... There were no players present for the draft. This is the origin draft of the WBL. The three-hour session concluded with New York selecting Phyllis George, the sports broadcaster and former Miss America. Quote, that's Miss America, not all America, Kanitsky said to laughter. That's all we need. <laughs> so it was really, it was nice to have a professional league to play in and, and say that, what's your vocation? I'm a professional basketball player. I'm an athlete. And prior to that, we didn't have it. And, you know, for everything that league was the 12 guys that put it together, they couldn't even fold the league. You know, they, they just ran out of money because they didn't have that TV. They didn't have, you know, the sponsorship, but they gave us a good run for a couple of years. I wanted to go back to, you know, what we're, when we first started, you were mentioning, you know, just talking to Martina about like what it's like to be living in 2021 as a female athlete and like the freedom on lots of different levels, what you wear, who you are, all of the things that were very different in different time periods. I mean, even when I was in high school in the late 90s and in college in the early 2000s, like there was a very different way of like presenting gender. Like every coach had to wear a skirt, you know, it was like it just felt like it was different. So so Martina and I were talking the other day and we went, isn't it just the shit? Like everybody looks at Bird and Megan, and they can live their life, and be who they organically are. And we caught so much shit in like 1980, 80, 81, because everybody was like, holy crap. And, you know, people were like, oh my gosh, talk about a power couple. You know, Martina was at the height of her career. I was just at the height of coming out of college. It was so difficult to lie and to hide because of acceptance back in the early 80s. And, you know, like we look here and we're like, how cool is that for them? They have no clue 
They were just living the dream. But that's that's where our country has gone to in, a, in an amazing way. That's I mean, it's so funny you you say that because we Jess and I were just talking before you hopped on about even looking at the W and Sue said this thing to me earlier this year about how historically in women's basketball, like it represented all of these things. The reality of it was that like there was race, there was sexual orientation, you know, there was gender performance, like, and for the longest time, it was not quote unquote cool. <laughs> and right. the women's basketball get dinged because of it. And over the last couple of years, you've started to see that everything the W or women's basketball has always like been about is now like, in the, the zeitgeist. But, you know, put that on steroids from the 80s. That was a difficult time for a lot of women because, you know, the pie, there was a pie, but the pie was so small. I had the majority of that pie. Cheryl Miller had the majority of that pie or Ann Myers. And what happened within the women's community, as we know, people were jealous because they worked just as hard as us. But some of us were getting more of the love and the shine than others. And now the thing that makes me so happy is that this pie is big and a lot of people in a lot of sports have it. Yeah, Sue, Sue Bird was saying, Megan and Sue and a lot of the members of the US women's national soccer team, they're saying like they'll feel like their job is done once they start kind of like looking at the next generation and being jealous. Like when Sue looks at Paige Becker, she's like, oh my God, she's already got six big time deals. And Sue didn't start getting those things until the last couple years ago. So it's like this steady progress where like, if you do have feelings of jealousy about the next generation, at least you know things are moving in the right direction. And I don't think it's it's uh, jealousy, it's more envy. <laughs> because, you know, I can remember, like I was never jealous of Rebecca Lobo, but I'm like, oh my gosh, she, it's to play her entire career on ESPN or, you know, uh, so many of these athletes have a different platform than we did. Like, I don't want much in life because I have more than I could ever uh, have asked for. But I will say I would have given a little piece of my pinky to play in my prime against some of the greatest athletes, female athletes in the world. That would have been super cool for me. like to feel safe women like to feel powerful women like to respond to their menstrual flow with the blunt force of an entire fleet of u.s naval destroyers that's why you need a feminine hygiene product that's designed for the ultimate warrior within new from the makers of the tactical flashlight the tactical spice rack and the tactical sports bra comes the brand new tactical tampon tactic this revolutionary new piece of equipment is designed to put an exclamation point on your period. Using our proprietary plant-based titanium alloy, the TacTamp fully neutralizes Aunt Flo before she barges in for a holiday supper. Holiday supper! TacTamp uses a highly sophisticated military-grade tracking device 
that knows exactly when Mother Nature's gift is about to unleash its fury upon your unsuspecting uterus. It uses 14 different sensors to deploy a prison-like defense system inside your body. It's like a personalized doomsday device for your hoo-ha. <laughs> Act now and we'll throw in a free tactical thong, the official companion underwear to TACTAMP for full-scale downstairs defense. TACTAMP Tactical Tampon. It's a tampon. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The scope of the motion picture is tremendous. It brings to us the life of fallen lands and strange peoples, the highlights of current events. The theater screen gives pleasure and enlightenment to millions everywhere. This is Does It Hold Up, where Jess and I go back and watch films that put women on the field or on the court, and we decide whether it still inspires and wows us, or whether it's a heaping pile of shit. So we watch our movies on Apple TV, just to give you the context. And usually how I search for movies is I have my little Apple TV remote and there's a button on the side and you can just voice into it. And I did this and I said, love and basketball. And Apple TV returned to me, Kevin loves stat page. (laughs) And so I thought, well, maybe I haven't articulated this properly because Love and Basketball was a very popular movie back in 2000. So I searched for it, physically typing it in, Kevin Love's stat page returns again, which to me felt like the perfect metaphor for how difficult I feel it is to actually find content on women in sports. Like I put in Love and Basketball, you returned Kevin Love of the NBA. And that is how hard it is to actually find the content you want around women playing sports. So that was my experience. I eventually had to like manually type it in. And On the Apple TV the- remote, which is like the worst experience. It's the worst. The worst user yes. experience. I mean, I hit so many hurdles to finding love in basketball that I imagine that most people would have fallen down and started crying. But eventually we found it and I was not crying. I was incredibly pleased at this movie that I had seen when it first came out 20 years ago and hadn't seen since. So, Jess, as someone who for the very first time watched Love and Basketball, and I haven't heard what you thought of it, what did you think of Love and Basketball? I really enjoyed this film. Yes. I really did. I can tell exactly why you wanted me to watch it. It was actually like really well done. Mm-hmm. And I'm really mm-hmm. curious. We'll we'll get to some of like the more detailed parts throughout this conversation. But I'm really curious what your thoughts on it are as someone who played D1 basketball in particular. Given that particular question about basketball and D1 and a thing you and I have talked about previously is when you are an expert in something and Hollywood attempts 
to replicate that something, it usually is embarrassing. A hundred percent. Yes. And in this case, and I don't, I made notes all along the way of how Love and Basketball fucking nailed this at every step of the way. The movie is broken down into quarters. And the first quarter, they're really young. They got to be like 10, 11 years old. And I'm not going to judge how the movie portrays the game of basketball then. And they do a solid job, but they're kids. But you really start to see it when the movie shifts to the second quarter and Monica, the lead character, and Q, the other lead character, are in high school. And of course they're going to portray men's basketball well. When you first see Monica dribbling a basketball, she clearly knows how to dribble a basketball. She's not like an actor pretending to dribble a basketball. Like She's legit got the swagger, got the bounce doing it. And the movie at every turn, even when it gets into playing overseas, fucking nails it. She's playing in Spain and she's playing for a subset of Barcelona, Messi's former club before he moved to PSG, which is an actual team that exists. And Spain is actually one of the destinations that a lot of female players go to. So it's like, I don't know who the consultant was on all of this, but it was perfection. I read in an article that Gina Prince-Blythewood had written the screenplay and was having a difficult time getting a studio to make it. I read this in The Ringer. Jordan Liggins wrote a really great story about this in The Ringer, so everyone should check that out. But when she wrote it, the WNBA didn't exist yet. So she had to kind of alter the ending for there to be a, you know, a world where the WNBA exists because when the movie came out, obviously people would be like, well, why did you go to Spain when there's, you know, basketball here I, now? I really think that this movie didn't hit a wrong note. The conceit of this particular segment is, does it hold up? I would say even the parts that I don't think they would have included now actually still hold up. And here I'm thinking of early in the movie when Monica, who has a strained relationship with her mom because her mom is in Monica's designation, just a homemaker. And in addition, her mom doesn't think that Monica wants her to come to her games. And so there's this whole disconnect between them. And Monica loves wearing Nike to the point where there's this great line that has become a meme since then. Like, damn girl, I didn't know Nike made dresses when she, you know, quote unquote, finally puts on a dress. But there's this one moment in the film where Monica, who like is usually wearing kicks and Nikes, and she knows she's playing into the stereotype that like a woman playing sports who doesn't like to wear traditionally girly clothes must be gay. And there's a moment where Monica jokingly says, well, like, no, mom, I'm a lesbian. And her mom is like, don't you dare. And that's the only moment of the film. And it's not a wrong note because I actually have lived that moment, not for myself, but like I've seen that moment actually play out in like the late 90s, early 2000s. Like, it's not a wrong note. It's actually probably how a lot of families felt. It didn't strike me as like, overtly homophobic it felt representative of that time period and the stereotypes of women in sports and I but I would say that's the only moment I could think of that the movie itself struck a wrong note rather than representing a society that I actually saw as true did you was there any moment where you thought I love in basketball that that doesn't hold up well, first of all, the line was the mom goes, I don't know when you'll grow out of this tomboy thing. And she goes, I won't. I'm a lesbian. And I was like, oh, because I didn't know what was going to happen next in the film. So it's like, oh, 
she's a lesbian. Oh my god, that's your twenty twenty one perspective. And then, is like, well, okay, she's a lesbian. That's fine. In the next line, you find out that she's kidding, and I was like, oh, she's not a lesbian. Okay, got it. Like, <laughs> I thought that was like, oh, okay, this is what the movie's about. No, I had no idea what the movie was about. So I was, I took her at face value. Um, no, she was just joking, I guess. Okay, so I want to go back for one second because there was one moment in Love and Basketball, and I want to know if you, as a former athlete, also identified with how deep the writers research must have gone into being an athlete. So it's when Q and Monica are in college. They are chilling, I think, in his dorm room, and he's icing her shins. And he's using a paper cup that's been filled with water and frozen, and then the top of it's been ripped off so that it's created this little portable ice that you can hold because the cup's still on it, but you get to like ice your shins and it melts as it goes. This is such a spot on detail of a way that I iced my shins and that like runners ice their shins that is so nuanced to sports that I was blown away that it was included. Like I can remember having the little green Gatorade cups, filling them with water and icing my shins with them in that way. Did that detail stand out to you at all? No, not until you just said it, but you're 100% right because no like producer is going to just do that. You would just buy an ice pack at the prop store or whatever at Target and then put it in the freezer and use it. But you're right. Like I never that's such an amazing detail. I thought you were going to say though when they were in the room and they decide to play strip horse or like strip pickup or something mm-hmm, and she goes mm-hmm. where's the D and he says right here because I was going to say no that is nothing like my athletic <laughs> experience whatsoever. Like that is only happening in a movie. <laughs> yes. That that entire scene only happens in a movie. If you actually attempt to do that in real life, it is just way less sexy all around. (laughs) Also, we have to mention one of the other great lines. You already mentioned the Gabrielle Union, I didn't know Nike made dresses line, but why don't you go fuck Dick Vitale was one of the funniest things that I have ever heard, (laughs) especially because he's in the film. So, I mean, you have to assume like he's watched this movie, right? Even if he wasn't in it, it it was a big movie. I wonder what his reaction was to that, to hearing that. Yeah. One of the most famous lines in the movie, it's an obvious one given the premise and the conclusion of the movie, but did you had you heard it before the movie, and that's essentially when Monica, in the fourth quarter of the movie, when Monica says to him, like, do you want to play one-on-one? And he's like, for what? And she's like, for your heart. Had you heard that before, like as a a meme in general? No, I haven't. I I really hadn't, but... I loved the ending because it was kind of corny, but then it it was just so beautiful at the same time. I think the director said she like predominantly wanted to make a romance movie, but also is about basketball, not like a basketball movie where there's a romance. It's Mm -hmm. so hard to stick the landing when you're tying a sports scene into like a love interest scene. I just have rarely ever seen that not be super super corny and fall flat but at the end when like they're playing pickup and he goes how about double or nothing I was like (gasps) like I my heart fluttered a little bit it was incredible one thing I thought the movie did great and it's a personal feeling I had but I want to know if you had it and it's not specific to sports but I thought Monica and Q I really believed their love so whether it's the chemistry between Omar Epps and Sanaa Latham or it must be that but I was feeling their love so deeply when I watched this on originally and then also when I watched it recently like I thought the romance aspect of it and even though I haven't been in love with a guy who's a fellow athlete 
I really could connect to loving someone who also loves the thing I love, which I thought was really at the heart of the movie as well. And in this case, it was about basketball. But I think they did a really beautiful job portraying when you are in love with someone who also loves, whether it's art or music, whether you're talking about musicians or anything, there's something about like the level of depth that you can get to with that that I thought the movie really portrayed well. That's interesting. I've never been in love with another Notre Dame football fan, so I imagine that <laughs> if I was, it would actually just be really toxic. But that's very, very well said, Kate. Um, and I also, I read that they were dating while this movie was being filmed, which is adds a whole layer yeah. of chemistry. And then, okay, the last thing I'll say that I read, because I keep saying like, I read this, I read this. The last thing you did your homework. I, I did. I tried to. I, I mean, after, it's one of those films that as soon as I finished watching, I was like, oh, I want to know more about how this came to be, which is always a sign of a good a good movie when you want to learn more about it, even after it ends. But I read that the director wanted to cast an athlete and then teach them how to act. And she was really interested in casting Serena Williams to play the lead instead mm-hmm. of having to cast an actress and then teach them how to play basketball, which is ultimately what happened. And knowing that now, and like, you know, we also have watched She's the Man and Amanda Bynes in that film was cast and then they had to teach her how to play soccer and she was fine. Like it's a, it's a comedy. So the expectations I think were probably not as high for it to look realistic, but I thought that the basketball skill that Sanaa Lathan had in this film was super impressive knowing that she had to learn all of that and then still act. And then she's also acting alongside her real life boyfriend. That's really hard to do. Yeah. Her, the movie doesn't even shy away from showing her in prominent roles on the court. It's not like there's a ton of basketball in it, but there's enough to fuck up the movie. And even her follow through is on point. And a follow through is a tough thing to learn later in life, how to make it look natural. One interesting point that I was considering while you were talking about how she wanted an athlete to teach to act rather than an actor that she could teach the sport. It does make me wonder if in Hollywood there's a general consensus that acting is easier to learn than sports. (laughs) I mean, I would posit that. Like, I do think that getting 10,000 hours in a sport, you don't need that to portray a good athlete. But I think it's... It would take more time to become good at a sport than it would to become a passable actor. This is what I'm positing here. I don't know what how you feel about that. I feel the opposite. And this is a good debate now. I think it's probably easier to become a passable athlete, but be an amazing actor and pretend that you're the best basketball player of all time because you mm-hmm. are so good at acting. I think about this a lot with like musical adaptations and films like should you hire a incredible singer who isn't a screen actor or should you hire like Russell Crowe and hope that he can sing Javert's parts in Les Mis well they did that it didn't work out so well that movie could have been a little bit better had they hired someone who could actually carry a note but yeah I think that's a that's an interesting debate I thought that the scene where you're seeing her point of view and she Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's when she's still in high school and she's kind of telling herself what to do and like keep your keep it cool and like do this don't do that like okay you're down one now there's 50 seconds left whatever I actually really like that scene and I thought that that was like a really interesting first person representation of what it actually feels like to be in a game where you're managing like several different thoughts and emotions at once while at the same time like oh my boyfriend's in the stands oh the you know head coach of UCLA is in the stands oh my parents are here my my coach is telling me to do this I have to run this play but like 
you're regulating all those emotions and still trying to stay focused. And I, I really like that scene. Catherine, my wife who watched it with me, also noted that scene. She's like, oh, this is really an interesting way to depict an on-court scene. And it's a device that I tend to watch most sports movies just because I'm interested in them. And I don't actually see that device used as much as I, I think you have to do it well. And you have to be bought into the character, but I feel like that device should be used more. And it was the first time I'd ever seen it used was in this movie. And I thought they did it really well. Just to close the loop on the actor athlete thing, I think you're right. Because I think that right now what I'm thinking is that to reach my standards of what it looks like to be a good basketball player probably requires more knowledge and attention than to be a passable basketball player. I could imagine that 99% of people who watch this movie could have seen a third of the specificity with basketball, playing overseas, and completely bought in and suspended disbelief. So I don't know that I, I think that's still open for debate, but I'm leaning toward your side. Okay, a couple other things I wanted to talk about in the movie, because I thought that what does hold up really well is the movie's attention to detail about the internal and external barriers to succeeding as a female athlete and having to navigate the way society places value on women and female athletes. And then here I'm thinking about early in the movie when she's in the car with Q and Q is like, you know, you got to hold your temper. And she makes the very astute point of the fact that he can get away with on-court behavior and get and not get a technical foul and also not have people in the stands think he's an out-of-control athlete. Whereas if she exhibits the same behavior, she gets teed, she gets benched, she has her parents saying the equivalent of like, be ladylike. And that's a very true thing that female athletes that we have had in, in sports media, like long debates about whether Serena Williams would have gotten into that altercation with the line judge if she were John McEnroe. Like these are things that permeate sports. And I thought Love and Basketball did a good job in that instance and throughout the movie of really showing her battle with like being seen as a both an athlete and being respected, but also being required somehow to also be in charge of like Hugh's feelings about all these different things that he wasn't in charge of when it came to her. Yeah. And I love that her character just says that you don't have to read between the lines and say like, wow, this is a sexist thing that the film's showing me. It's like, no, she's really smart. And she gets that this is a double standard. Piggybacking off of that point, they're both, especially in the high school and college scenes, like they're both doing side by side, like the same arc, like they have similar success, but an opposite sides of the sport like he's a successful high school player getting recruited she's a successful high school player also trying to get recruited he has a ton more fans at his games he's getting media attention there's reporters going up to him after the game she's fighting for exposure so that she can get a college scholarship so it's like showing you exact one for one the difference between being a successful man playing a sport and a successful woman playing a sport and it's true like not just in basketball but also in real life like if you're a successful lawyer and you're a woman, you're a successful woman's lawyer. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. and the men get all of the recognition and the credit for doing the exact same thing as you, but being a man while doing it. Yeah. It's actually almost like a beautiful, like Hollywood case study of a young boy and a young girl who love the sport. And at the age when they meet 10, 11, she's beating him. He could also beat her. There's some level of equality, but then they get put on very different paths. And again, this is not to say that like biological differences don't exist, but it's that 
oh, okay, but we see the heart of each of their love for basketball and the heart of what they've put into the game. And then as you clearly outline the different, as they're on like the conveyor belt moving through their lives, the things and the interactions that she has to deal with and the lack of support, fan support, media support, all of that, the movie really nails all of that without hitting you over the head with it. Like there was never a moment when anyone was like, occasionally Monica's like, I have to do this and I have to do that because I'm a woman, but no one's being like, how come the locker room at the USC women's isn't bigger? Like the movie doesn't have to tell you those things. It doesn't have to like proselytize about women's sports. It's just simply showing you two people who love basketball and their very different journeys because of the way society is built and functions around women's sports. And I think in that way, it really knocks it out of the park. Right. There was one other way where I thought the movie didn't hold up. And again, I want to know if you pick this up too. So Q gets hurt in the movie and his dad, who he hasn't seen, rushes to the hospital. And the energy around this injury to Q is that he's really might never play again. Like the vibe is really intense. Oh, yeah. It's this really bad intense. vibes. Yeah. <laughs> bad vibes. I'm like, are we talking like a triple fracture with like a spiral with like bolts? Also, What's going on I mean, here? when they showed the scene where he got injured, like you heard like a crack or something, right? Yes. Like I heard, I was like, oh, his his bone is coming out. Like, <laughs> yes. this is a compound fracture. This is like fracture. a Kevin Ware <laughs> Louisville injury. I was going to say like here. Joe Theismann watched it and flinched. Yeah. And we get to the hospital and Q's mom comes out, talks to the father and is like, is it bad? It's bad. It's a torn ACL. And I'm like, that's like, that is one way in which the movie does not hold up. And thank God for our advances in sports technology and sports science that an ACL now you can sometimes come back from in three months. Yeah. Back then, it probably was more like 12 to 18 months. And so in that case, it's like, oh, that's incredibly serious. And that is interesting to see how science has progressed. And you know what? That is a really great point. I also noticed that. And I think the best part of that section of the film was then when he's recovering and in walks Tyra Banks in a red power suit. (laughs) And it's like, okay, even a bench player for the Lakers who is injured, who gets no playing time, is still dating a supermodel. Like that is yes. point on point right there. Although obviously she's supposed to be like a flight attendant, but you're watching and you're like, it's Tyra Banks. And also she was called a stewardess in it. That also doesn't <laughs> hold up. True. <laughs> I think Monica's mom called her a stewardess. True. I think you have to give a lot of credit to Gina Prince Blythewood for writing and directing this film and herself being a black female director, which there are not a lot of female directors in Hollywood. There are certainly not a lot of black women directors in Hollywood. And taking the time and care to tell a really carefully done story. And there are so many films that we've both seen that whiff on a lot of the details about being a woman in sports or just any coming of age film even about women and young girls. And this film was really well done. And I was really impressed with the way that it it has held up clearly. And I enjoyed watching it. I will definitely watch it again. I have always thought of it as the gold standard in telling a story that includes a female athlete. And in the rewatching, there is so much nuance all the way through the movie, including at the very end where we spin the trope on its head and you see Monica Wright, now Monica Wright McCall, cues partner walking onto a WNBA court and who's sitting courtside but Q with their child and it just completely spun on its head the usual sports trope of like the woman in the stance cheering on her man and I thought 
just its ability to have foresight into the future of the W and being able to include that storyline in this movie, I thought ended it on a note that made it feel timeless. This movie didn't at the time make a ton of money, but it has been one of those movies that like sticks around generation after generation sees it, finds it, appreciates its attention to detail and its care that it took with telling these stories. Like there's a reason now in the rewatching that it's clear that Love and Basketball has become like the cult classic for how to tell these stories. We're ending this on a positive note. We both really like Love and Basketball. And so far we've seen A League of Their Own, Love and Basketball, and Bend It Like Beckham. Mm -hmm. And do you have a favorite movie of those three? This is, it's tricky, Jess, because, well, let's just start by saying I'm I'm 100% confident that my third favorite is Bend It Like Beckham. Yes, okay, fair enough. Then there's the, the top two spots of Love and Basketball and A League of Their Own. It's really tricky for me because A League of Their Own, despite possessing more flaws and not quote unquote holding up quite as well as Love and Basketball did, it's so nostalgic for me that I'm having a tough time not putting it at number one. So there's like two rankings. Like, does Love and Basketball hold up better? Yes. Which would I want to watch on repeat? I don't know. I don't know. Do you, where are you at in this? I hate ranking things just in general. Like, okay. I, I honestly and don't know either. And now it's You do been the like, Levitard show and you hate ranking things? Well, those are stupid rankings. This, I feel like I'm being like a little bit serious here, right? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe we need to watch two more movies before, you know, before we're done here and then rank all five because yeah. that would be the true Levitard ranking system. Yeah. We need a, a minimum of five movies before we're allowed to rank. But, but I, right you're now, right. I, I really like, this was my first time watching Love and Basketball and A League of Their Own with you for this podcast both movies that I can say easily in my top 25 movies of all time and Ooh. definitely top five sports movies of all time when when I suggested we watch them again did you think they were going to be in black and white yeah <laughs> and they weren't I mean they, they seem like A League of Their Own has like this like um, faded unsaturated film grain quality to it that like a lot of newer movies don't have but I will say about Love and Basketball it was shot beautifully mm. not just a great sports mm. movie Kate but a great film and yeah. I'm a big fan we should watch more good movies we should you know th there's some crossover potential between cinephile and Love and Basketball here because you and I we could certainly jump into the cinematic aspects of movies I mean that I don't know if that's your area of expertise but I did major in film and television in college. Whoa. The dean with the hot info. I did not know that about you. We're learning something new on this podcast every day. All right. Let's thank the people who help us make this show. TACTAMP was written and brought to you by Nameless Numberhead. And a big thank you to Gabrielle Union, whose moment of epiphany you heard at the top of the show. The show is produced by you! And our executive producer is Carl Scott, who also edits and mixes all the great sounds that you hear in this episode. And thanks again to Nancy Lieberman for hopping on with us and giving us that wide-angle perspective on women's sports.
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.